Hello, hello. Welcome to the When in Spain podcast show. Hola, que tal todos? Wherever you're listening from around the world, a big, warm Spanish welcome from me, Paul Burge. I'm your host, an Englishman in Madrid. Well, I've just got back to Madrid, actually, after a couple of weeks on the road with uh, my fiance Karina. We were lucky enough to uh, jump in the car and head down to the south of Spain, particularly La Costa de la Luz uh, coast, the coast of light. And in fact, that's what this podcast is going to be about. A little miniature travel log. Think of it as a little uh, tabla de quesos y jamón, a little mixture of uh, little snippets from our travels around the south of Spain. I'm going to be bringing you a few sounds and bits and pieces that uh, we recorded, along with my kind of reflections on those places. Um, I'll talk a little bit more about that in a second. But uh, uh, I hope wherever you're listening from in the world, you've had the opportunity Opportunity to have a little break over the summer, recharge your batteries. Um, to be honest with you, our trip around the south of Spain was, um, well, I was in charge of the itinerary and let's say I maybe packed a few too many things in. <laughs> we did feel a little bit tired at various points during uh, during our holidays. Um, we're back in Madrid now, recharging our batteries for a few days before we get back into the swing of things back to reality, back to work. But um, anyway, I'll talk about uh, where we went uh, a bit later on in the podcast show. But I just wanted to say a big hello and uh, hope you're all well and uh, hope you had a good summer. If anyone's new to the podcast, thank you for tuning in. What I endeavour to do each week is bring a little slice of Spain to you directly into your ears. And I also try where possible to uh, have some guests on the podcast, some interviewees to talk about various uh, subjects as well. But I'm afraid for this episode you're stuck with little old me. So before we get into the little travel log uh, of uh, southern southwestern Spain, Costa de la Luz, I would as always like to give a little shout out to new When in Spain patrons. In fact, I've just got one uh, When in Spain patron to uh, say thank you to in this episode. And I would like to say thank you to Merin Myrtle. Merin Myrtle, uh, who's uh, When in Spain's most recent patron. Uh, big, big thank you to you, Merin. Much appreciated. Thank you for showing your support by signing up to become a patron. Um, I know I talk about this every week, so I'm not going to go into too much uh, detail about it. I think most listeners who've been listening to this for a while know uh, what Patreon is and what a patron is. If you'd like to show your appreciation for this podcast and, well, really help me keep putting it together, Patreon is a crowdfunding website that allows people who uh, appreciate content creators uh, like me. It's a way for them to show their appreciation by signing up to make uh, small uh, donations. So from as little as just $1 a month, all of the money goes towards covering the costs of putting the podcast show together. I don't have the backing of big sponsorships or advertising or a big media operation or company behind me. It's just me, a microphone, and my personal time and uh, effort, if you like, to put this podcast show together. Please consider heading across to patreon.com forward slash when in Spain and I will love you para siempre. So enough of that. I'd like to talk about uh, our little trip down to southwestern Spain. The area is called La Costa de la Luz, which is uh, the coast of light. And this is part of Spain that for me, I 
didn't really know very well at all. So during our trip, we headed down from Madrid. We made a one-night stopover just to break up the journey a little bit uh, in Merida, which is actually in the Extremadura region of Spain. We didn't actually spend any time visiting Merida because we had been there before, but we just wanted to break up the kind of six-and-a-half-hour journey car journey with an overnight stop in a little Casa Rural, which was absolutely beautiful, a very peaceful uh, little countryside cottage, a husband and wife team uh, running a place, four bedrooms, a little swimming pool in a courtyard, which was absolutely idyllic, uh, breakfast included, very comfortable, very rustic, and I think it was something like 40 euros for the night for, for both of us, so incredibly good value. And um, just a note on this, you will find that a lot of uh, accommodation, whether their hotels or casa rurales uh, in the summer season you can get some absolute bargains why because really nobody wants to stay in the interior of spain during the summer months obviously you know 99 percent of spaniards head to the coasts or um, maybe to their mountains uh, or to their villages um, but they don't go uh, holidaying really around central spain and then our first stop was Cadiz, one of my favourite cities in Spain. You're going to hear a bit of a mixed bag of audio snippets that I recorded in this podcast episode. And uh, apologies if it's a little bit rambly because, um, you know, really I just hit record and just, just started chatting and recording sounds and things like that. So I talk a bit about the history and a bit about the topography and the kind of vibe of Cadiz to start off with. Uh, then we uh, headed along uh, the coast to a small resort town, I guess that's how I would describe it, called Conil. Neither of us had been to Conil before and uh, the reason we chose it was recommendations from friends. Quite a few people had said, oh, it's a really nice little town. It's very lively. Um, it's got a fantastic beach. I didn't really record anything in Conil apart from a, a bit of a live concert, which was going on in the middle of the town square. Well, neither of us were particularly keen on Conil, to be honest. I'll explain my reasons behind that uh, when we get to that part of the podcast. From Conil, we used that as a base for a couple of days to explore some of the uh, beautiful beaches along the Costa de la Luz. Um, we also headed up into a beautiful, beautiful whitewashed hillside town, I suppose you would describe it as, called uh, Bejer, which was absolutely beautiful. And uh, I'll describe that in quite a lot of detail a bit later on. From Bejer, we then headed along further west, uh, right alongside the Doñana National Park. And we stayed in a town right on the edge of the Doñana National Park. Uh, this was in Huelva province. We stopped in a really intriguing and quite unusual town called El Rocío. El Rocío, it's, it's like something from the Wild West, to be honest. None of the streets are tarmacked. It's all dust and sand, and most of the population all travel around the town on horses or horse and carts. And uh, there's a big uh, religious festival there every year, which is very famous. There are stables everywhere. And stay tuned right to the end of the podcast, because on our last night uh, before heading back in uh, El Rocío, 
we stumbled across a bar where there was an impromptu, well, I guess you call it a flamenco concert. Uh, no dancing, but a girl and her friends with a guitar just randomly started jamming and singing together. And it was absolutely beautiful and really moving. So stay tuned to the end of the episode for some snippets from that. And from El Rocío, we headed across the border into Portugal to Faro, uh, which is uh, about was about two hours uh, driving from El Rocío. And again, it's somewhere I'd never been to in Portugal. I'd been to Lisbon and um, Porto, but I'd never been to Faro. And what a beautiful and charming small city that is uh, on the southern uh, coast of Portugal in the uh, Algarve or Algarve. Really, really recommendable. I know this podcast is about Spain, but I did fall in love quite hard with uh, Portugal again, uh, visiting Faro. Um, Absolutely wonderful city. Um, I didn't record any kind of snippets there, really, but um, I will talk a little bit about uh, my observations on the city in a bit more detail at the end of the podcast. Also, I forgot to mention, we did also stop off when we were in Cadiz to visit some friends in El Puerto de Santa Maria. El Puerto de Santa Maria, uh, which again is worth a visit if you're in Cadiz. It's just across the uh, bay, really, across the harbour. So there you go, a little roundup of the places. The first stop is Cadiz, so I'll hand myself over to me in the past, where I will take up uh, the story. Hello, yes, so, so I've just handed myself over to me. Here we are in Cadiz. Now, um, we're down in Andalusia. We have come back down from Madrid, made a little stop off in Merida. We've uh, then continued another three and a half hours down in a straight line almost to Cadiz. Now, for any of you guys who haven't been to Cadiz before, but you've been to Andalusia, and maybe you're planning a second trip to uh, Andalusia, I'm just going to say, please put Cadiz on your visit list. It is so worth it. Now, don't get me wrong, I know, um, you know, in Andalusia it's full of gems, as is Spain. And of course, yes, we have got, you know, Seville and Cordoba and Granada, the kind of three classic, uh, I suppose the three gems of Andalusia that everyone always thinks to go visit and I must say Malaga as well which I absolutely love as a city and you know hopefully would one day like to go and live in. What I would really really suggest is get down to Cadiz because yes it's not a city of monuments as per se although the cathedral is absolutely spectacular. It's a city of kind of and everyone seems to say it's got this feeling of faded grandeur behind it. But it is a grand city. Uh, to give you an idea of the kind of topography or geography of Cadiz, for anyone who doesn't, who isn't sure, but I'm sure you've heard of the city. You know, it's really, well, <laughs> the end of Spain, the end of the world, almost. It's not the southernmost tip of Spain. Um, that would probably be Tarifa. But we are really, you get the feeling that this is it. Everything behind me is Europe and everything in front of me is sea and then Africa. So you really get the sense that this is the end of Spain, the end of the Iberian Peninsula and there's nothing else but sea beyond. Well, I was just in a beautiful park 
called Jardines de Alameda Apodaca. And uh, this is a very, uh, well, it feels subtropical almost. I mean, you really do notice the difference of the vegetation down in the south of Spain compared to Madrid. It's like we've got these beautiful, I think they're called banyan trees with the kind of branches that actually grow down from from the branches grow down into the ground they've got these big smooth curved almost like the tree branches are dripping down into the into the earth palms cactuses succulents uh beautiful tropical i think they're called butterfly flowers but i can't remember the official name of them um it's a beautiful park and it's right next to the sea so try to build a picture for you i mean if you imagine um Cadiz as a kind of fist that is punching out into the sea. So the, the round shape of the fist is kind of like the city centre. And then the kind of arm and the wrist are also part of the city, but, but are like the kind of suburbs or the more the outskirts of the city. But that's what, if you look at a map of Cadiz, it looks like a kind of fist punching out into the Atlantic Ocean. So on this peninsula, you have got a huge lattice of crisscross, narrow streets, absolutely beautiful, which form the city of Cadiz with numerous squares. Um, I mean, the lovely thing about Cadiz, I find, is that you're walking along these, through these narrow streets and suddenly, out of nowhere, you stumble across these it's just absolutely beautiful little squares, shaded palm tree squares, full of life. So if you imagine this, this city kind of hammered by sea on on three three sides really or three and a half sides it definitely retains this air of faded grandeur i suppose uh, many of the buildings when you do walk around uh, the center of cadiz are in dire need of restoration and repair and in a way kind of reminds me a little bit of last year i was in Havana in Cuba, La Habana. And obviously, I mean, you know, in, in Havana in Cuba, that is another level of kind of disrepair and neglect. But there are little corners of Cadiz in Spain which do very much remind me of, of Havana in Cuba. You know, these, these tiny narrow streets, the sort of peeling facades, balconies which are just decaying and crumbling whole buildings which we just saw about half an hour ago where they're just completely covered in in like green netting and not because they're being developed by developers or builders or anything like that construction companies but just to stop bits of brick and stone and rubble falling onto people's heads in the street a bit of history behind Cadiz uh, well the city actually claims to be the oldest in Western Europe or well, I think it goes something like the oldest continually inhabited city in Western Europe. Uh, dating back to 1100 BC uh, when the Phoenicians uh, called it Gadir, which is interesting because people from Cadiz are known, are known as Gaditanos or Gaditanas if they're if they're female. But yeah, the population, someone from Cadiz is known as a Gaditano, with the G, Gaditano. It was used as a base by the Carthaginians uh, for military campaigns in the peninsula, but it really prospered under the Roman rule after Julius Caesar granted Gades, as it became known. 
and you can see the connection with the name Cadith. Um, it was granted the privileges of a Roman town. After the Romans left, um, Cadiz declined uh, quite considerably and it was only really of minor uh, importance under the Moors, under the Moorish occupation of the peninsula. Uh, trade with the Americas did help revive its fortunes in the 16th century, um, although an English raid in 1596 <laughs> destroyed a third of the city. Um, so the city's period of real, really the city's period of greatest uh, prosperity began in uh, the seven, early 1700s, particularly in 1717 when the silting up of the Guadalacavir uh, River led the Chamber of Commerce of the Americas to move here from Seville. So a century later Cadiz achieved its historical zenith when in 1812 uh, the short-lived uh, Cortes, which was a, um, the Spanish Parliament, uh, met here to declare the first ever Spanish constitution. So nowadays, um, yeah, it's a very youthful, vibrant city. I think the population, uh, population is around 160,000 inhabitants. Beautiful, colourful facades in a typical Andalusian colour scheme of white and like a kind of mustard yellow. You've got pinks and greens, most of which I, most of which dates from the late 18th and early 19th centuries. And um, yeah, you can see there's a, a strong influence from France. It's got elegant, very elegant neoclassical. Uh, detailing on the buildings, buildings arranged in long straight rows. Um, another really striking feature is the uh, number of balconies which actually project out from the, the, the edifice or the, the, the frontage of the building. Something just fell from the tree above me, I don't know what that was. Um, but yeah, lots of protecting balconies which have been glazed, which have been, uh, which have been kind of glassed in, which is, yeah, you do see it in other cities in Spain, but here there is actually a red line that is uh, painted through the town on the, on the street and on the pavements, which is designed to lead visitors from the uh, Plaza San Juan de Dios which is a really, really beautiful square, probably one of the prettiest squares in the city. And it leads you right through the oldest part of town, the medieval, the medieval uh, Barrio del Popolo, uh, via a number of other squares, really beautiful squares as well. Hola, muy buenas. So Karina's here with me. We just uh, stopped in a little plaza. Quite busy now. What time is it? About quarter to six in the afternoon. And we've done a lot of walking. And now we've stopped in another little plaza called Plaza... I can't read the sign. I think it begins with M. Plaza Mentidero. Plaza Mentidero. We're in Plaza Mentidero. In English it's liars. Man mentidero. Pero eso es mentiroso, ¿no? Ah, mentidero también. Interesting. Like gossiping. Yeah, but lying. So Mentidero translates as the square of 
like liar square because well it makes sense I suppose because there are lots of tables and chairs it's only a small square a little fountain in the middle which is switched off and the uh, terrazas are filling up as you can probably hear so people come here to gossip and lie about each other I mean it's a translation but it's, I don't know if it's true or not <laughs> maybe they are not liars they've just turned the fountain on in the square there's a little girl bless her and a little pink dress who was kind of half in the fountain and it suddenly turned on and she was like leapt out <laughs> um, no it's a beautiful city Cadiz um, I, I have to say the last time I came here was five years ago with my good friend Chris who lives up in Barcelona if you're listening Chris I'm sure you remember our trip to Cadiz and El Puerto de Santa Maria which we hope to go to tomorrow to visit some friends but um, now actually this time in Cadiz I was surprised at how busy it was a lot of tourists I suppose it's the time of year um, I've heard a lot of English spoken on the streets I wouldn't necessarily describe it as a tourist city but there are a lot of yeah a lot of tourists here and I think the reason is also Cadiz has a really big port and when we walked past the port we saw a huge bri- uh, we saw a huge big uh, cruise liner cruise ship moored up in the port um, so I'm guessing that's probably something to do with it what day is it today today's Thursday right it's what happens when you go on holiday you lose track of what what day it is so for a Thursday around Cadiz, which is, again, it's only a small city, 150, 160,000 people. I remember it being a lot quieter the last time, last time I came here, to be honest. As you can hear now, where we're sitting, it's getting busier and busier. But, uh, in this square now, the fountain's going, with the tables and chairs in this shady square. Um, as you can hear, more and more people arriving on a Thursday evening. And this square is shaded by um, a particular tree. I've seen quite a lot in the south of Spain. It's like a fine-leafed, fern-like tree, uh, which has these beautiful, deep, mauve and purple flowers, which are all in bloom at the moment. So all around the square, these beautiful trees full of purple, deep purple flowers, bristling in the breeze. And I think that's another thing that's important to say about Cadiz and about this, this part of the coast of Spain is that it is breezy. Like, we're not in the Mediterranean anymore. Um, we are really technically on the Atlantic. Uh, the, kind of, the kind of point that delineates the Mediterranean from the Atlantic, as I'm sure many of you know, is the Rock of Gibraltar. So we are west of the Rock of Gibraltar in the uh, beginnings of the Atlantic Ocean and you do really notice actually that uh, it's a lot more breezy I would say it can get incredibly windy at certain times of year we're here in the middle of August and actually it's incredibly refreshing compared to uh, for example Murcia where we were last week and certainly Madrid where there is really no air movement at all Um, but you know I've heard some people say depending on the time of year you know, avoid certain beaches on uh, La Costa de la Luz because it's just too windy, particularly I think down further along, south along the coast, sort of southeast towards uh, Tarifa. So that was Cadiz. Our next stop was Conil. We weren't keen on it. 
Um, I mean, it's quite an attractive town. It's the typical kind of low-rise, uh, one, two, three-story uh, houses and uh, buildings in the centre of the town, which are all whitewashed with the little windows, the little interior courtyards and the uh, balconies. And it does have uh, an amazing beach. It has a huge, uh, long and very, very wide beach with very fine golden sand and it has these sort of small sand dunes behind the beach and the beach is right next to the town and there are various uh, callas they're called callas uh, coves further along the coast from Conil um, you would really need a car to access them um, but why didn't we like it I mean to be honest it feels like a Spanish summer party capital it was not very peaceful loads going on i mean if you're young if you're in your late teens early 20s and you want to go partying uh with loads of spaniards um then it's perfect um but it was really intriguing for me it kind of reminded me of the kind of i'm not going to go as far as to say it's like a benedorm for spaniards no way it's far more low-key and much much more beautiful than benedorm um, but it reminds me i don't know for any brits listening of Newquay down in Cornwall during the summer months, which becomes overrun with with Brits, like groups of friends uh, going out, getting drunk, that kind of thing, and then recovering with a hangover on the beach. Maybe Blackpool, but again, infinitely more, more attractive. It's just a party, a real party town in the summer months. So for that reason, it was very loud. Everything is open really, really late. Everywhere in the town is really busy. All of the restaurants, all of the bars are absolutely packed with people and uh, well here's a little snippet of uh, some live concert which was going on in the middle of the square groups of teenagers and people in their I suppose mid early mid 20s there were also families as well there were lots of children um, but it was just very busy very busy um, not at all what we expected we expected something much more low-key the beach as I said beautiful huge wide beach the problem with the beach windy really windy uh, during the time we were there now it does depend you can it's kind of potluck on that part of the well in general on the uh, Costa de la Luz um, because uh, when the Levante wind blows um, it makes it very difficult to be honest to be on the beach for any extended period of time so we headed to the beach uh, one afternoon and I think we managed maybe two hours before we just said no <laughs> let's go um, because you just get sandblasted it's such a shame because the beach is just beautiful um, but the constant strong wind is blowing whipping sand up into your face uh, if you want to uh, the shade of an umbrella or a parasol it's almost impossible to anchor uh, it into the sand if you want to eat any food is you know you can just imagine it with a really really strong wind that's blowing constantly how difficult it is to really relax so um, another negative point uh, for us with uh, for Conil so indeed what we did do um, because we did want to relax 
on a beach near Cornelia is we drove along the coast and there are about five or six different coves or known as calas in Spanish, which are more sheltered, more secluded. The problem is with those... And again, this is just the situation when you go on holiday, peak season in Spain, you know, in August, everybody, every Spaniard and their dog is on holiday uh, on the coasts. And the problem with the Calas is they're much more sheltered from the wind. Great. Um, But because they're quite small and enclosed, they're absolutely packed with people because of course all of the uh, locals who live in the area or other people from or or Spaniards from other parts of Spain know the score uh, the the beach on the beach in Conil was almost deserted um, yet all of these little coves were absolutely packed to the rafters with people the whole beach you know just trying to find a couple of square meters uh, to throw your towel down was uh, quite a challenge so really my my advice is it's a stunning stretch of coast and uh, there are some beautiful coves and beaches and dunes and cliff top parks and uh, caminos like where you can walk between the different coves my personal advice would be avoid it during the summer months Um, I would say maybe try it in the spring or later on out of season maybe in September or October Um, but yeah it's one thing you have to be careful with on the Costa de la Luz because it's not the Mediterranean coast it is effectively the Atlantic coast so once you are west of Gibraltar or the Straits of Gibraltar that's when the wind kicks in and it's not that's not to say it's always really really windy but it's a little bit unpredictable and uh, you know you could book a week or a few days in that part of Spain and it's you, d- you don't know until you get there whether it's going to be windy or not but when it is windy it's really windy. Um, I suppose having said that it would be very recommendable place for windsurfers, kite surfers, that kind of thing. We saw loads of kite surfers uh, all along the uh, Costa de la Luz um, which is perfect conditions uh, for that kind of thing. Um, we also headed up into a beautiful, beautiful whitewashed hillside town, I suppose you would describe it as, called uh, Becher, which was absolutely beautiful. This afternoon, we have driven up from Conil to a beautiful hilltop village called Becher. Yeah, Becher. Uh, B-E-R-J-E-R. Becher. Um, um, an absolutely typical and really well-preserved and perfect example of an Andalusian hilltop whitewashed village. Every street and square around the town uh, is full of beautiful whitewashed buildings and that typical Andalusian Moorish style. You can clearly see the Arabic influence uh, here in the small town of Becher. And I'll talk a little bit about the history behind the uh, town in a minute, but it's absolutely spectacular. Um, I think in 1978 it was awarded uh, a prize for uh, its beauty and it's uh, known as one of the most beautiful villages in Spain, if you didn't already know. I hadn't heard of it before. And as you drive into the town itself, um, they've got a little sign um, crowning the city's glory of being one, I think it said, uno de los pueblos más bonitos de España, one of the most beautiful 
villages of Spain and I can uh, I can vouch for that to be honest. So it's a Spanish hilltop town, it's in the municipality of the province of Cadiz, uh, down here in Andalusia, and it's uh, located on the right bank of the river Barbate, and the, in fact the town of Bejer uh, occupies a low hill overlooking the Straits of uh, Gibraltar, and um, yeah, the landscape around it's beautiful, surrounded by orchards and orange groves, and really most of the town's architecture uh, uh, recalls the uh, period of Moorish rule. Um, as I'm talking to you now, and you can probably hear uh, the water fountain which I'm standing next to now, I'm actually talking to you from the Plaza de España in Bejer. And really, <laughs> Plaza de España, it couldn't be further away it couldn't be more different from the horrible mess that is the Plaza de España back in Madrid. It's absolutely sickeningly beautiful village square. So we've got this beautiful uh, fountain which is constructed of terracotta tiles and bricks and then adorned with blue, yellow and green uh, tiles, the kind of azulejo those beautiful colourful tiles that you sometimes see decorating the walls of those little internal patios. Well, the fountain is designed like that and inside the fountain you've got four uh, quite large ceramic green frogs with water sprouting from their mouth. So the fountain is the centrepiece of Plata de España here in Bejer. And, uh, well, really, Plata de España in the town is the sort of centrepiece of the town, as you might expect, I suppose. So around the outside of the fountain, we've got a uh, marble uh, paved floor. And then around the outside of the square, a uh, selection of lovely, really old palms with lights strung between them. And then the square is enclosed on really all sides by, as I said, these beautiful whitewashed uh, houses that are about three stories tall um, with their uh, wrought iron balconies. All of the shutters are down. It's about half past five in the afternoon, so it's pretty, pretty hot. Although there's a nice stiff breeze uh, blowing through the town because we are um, at quite a high elevation. Um, we are not on the coast. It's a hilltop town. I don't know exactly, but we are probably several hundred uh, feet above sea level where we are here. Uh, we've got the classic bright purple and burgundy uh, burgundia plants or flowers trailing uh, down the uh, whitewashed buildings. Some of the balconies have got uh, all the little terracotta pots uh, pinned up on the wall with geraniums and other bright coloured flowers. And then uh, we've got a few terrazas laid out. Um, because below some of these apartments or houses are little restaurants and uh, little tapas bars and then uh, shading the terrazas we've got rows of uh, orange trees as well so it, it is absolutely picture perfect I have to say for me it's probably probably is the most or one of the most beautiful uh, town squares that I've ever seen in Spain and also on the square, I must mention where me and Karina have just uh, had lunch is a beautiful 
hotel and restaurant called Khalifa. Or if you're indeed coming to Becher, do check out the hotel and restaurant called Khalifa, which serves amazing, an amazing range of North African and Moroccan cuisine. Absolutely delicious and uh, uh, very fairly priced as well. In fact, the full name is El Jardin del Khalifa. And there's also a little tea room, so you can have some Moroccan-style mint tea served in the little uh, metal jugs and, and poured into the little uh, glasses. Um, it's a beautiful restaurant. It's got a beautiful interior, shaded uh, garden, patio. It's you know really idyllic place. So going back to a bit of the history of Becher, from certain points around the town, you can look out down across to the sea. So really, the town overlooks the straits of Gibraltar and because of its location up on the hill overlooking the Straits of Gibraltar of course it attracted many many peoples over the centuries or millennia who made this part of Spain their home thanks to its uh, its position so it was an enclave really for some of Europe's oldest uh, civilizations the Phoenicians the Carthaginians the Romans all spent time here it was used as a defense town against the Iberians from the interior of Spain as well as protecting uh, the commercial factories and fishing centers, tuna fisheries, all established by these various settlers down on the coast. So the Romans founded the famous town of Besipo here and there are still surviving traces of the Roman civilization uh, which we've seen around, uh, around the town. The columns of the parish church, there's the, there's the aqueduct of Santa Lucia, and there are also a variety of archaeological remains that have been uh, found, excavated around the town. Uh, after the Romans, the Visigoths settled in the town and just outside between uh, the lagoon, which is about eight kilometers uh, from the town center. So between the town and the sea, about eight kilometers from Becher. Uh, the Battle of Handa took place. And then after falling to the Arabs, the town was in Muslim hands for 539 years. And their conquerors left their mark, of course, in the form really of the town as we can see it today, the town's design. Uh, so narrow winding streets, little cobbled streets, and really, as I mentioned, the design of the houses. The beautiful interior tiled uh, patios and courtyards, all of the uh, whitewashed facades and then the black uh, balconies, iron balconies and uh, barred windows uh, that you see absolutely everywhere around the town. It is absolutely spectacular. What I love about it um, is you get the contrast, the light here down in the Cadiz province and also I think, you know, being few hundred meters above sea level this time of year and I'm guessing really all year round it's just the contrast this eye-blinking contrast of the absolute bright deep blue skies against these beautiful whitewashed buildings and everywhere you walk uh, you just see this blue against white or I should say white against blue well, if you like this kind of thing, um, it's, it's absolutely stunning. It's a real, real treat for the eyes. So then in 1250, Ferdinand III 
or Ferdinand the Holy, as he was known, captured the town from the kingdom of Castile and Bejer, and its castle became a border fortress in the face of the Muslim forces. Hence the addition of De La Frontera. Yes, I should have mentioned that. The full name of Bejer is actually Bejer de la Frontera. And you will notice that many towns and villages around Andalusia are suffixed with de la Frontera. And this is exactly what it means, that, uh, that these towns and villages were at some point on the frontier during the Reconquista or the Reconquest or the Conquest, however you want to look at it, of the Moors being pushed further and further south and backwards back towards North Africa uh, during the Reconquista. And these towns and villages were the kind of uh, on the frontier, uh, on that front line, if you like, and... Uh, Becher uh, is no exception. Also, uh, historically uh, important to mention, um, the shores very close to Becher uh, were the site of the famous Battle of Trafalgar, where the Franco-Spanish fleet was defeated by the English. <laughs> okay, and on the square where I'm talking to you from now, in fact, there is a little bar called Bar Trafalgar. So there you go. So we're just winding our way through from Plata España, through the streets. And we're going to find a little terraza, have a little drink before we jump in the car. And I think we're going to head down to Barbate or a beach uh, near here. But as you can hear in the background, there's a little impromptu uh, cante, the flamenco. Uh, just happening in the streets. There's a guy standing outside a bar with a group of, I think, his friends, or certainly locals of the bar. All their little glasses of, uh, of wine, and as you can hear, he's giving a little impromptu performance for his friends. While we are just talking about this part of Spain and this uh, Costa de la Luz, depending on your preference, um, the water temperature along this coast, again being the Atlantic Sea, uh, is much, much cooler, or even I would go as far as to say cold uh, for swimming, if you're not used to it. Again, each to their own. I am, I know people who love uh, swimming in, in cold water and sort of say, you know, what's the point of going in the sea if it's going to be warm like a soup? It's completely different to the Mediterranean coasts or the Costa del Sol. Like I said, once you get past the Straits of Gibraltar, it's uh, windier, but the other thing is the water is a lot, lot colder. So I was talking about the Calas or the little coves uh, along from Conil. In fact, they're really kind of heading heading northwest. Uh, the cove that we tried out, which was really beautiful, uh, lovely sand, nice gentle sloping beach, was uh, one called Cala del Aceite, uh, the, the cove of oil, or well, the cove of olive oil. You know, really lovely situation. You have to hike down quite a sandy cliff park, and there is a, there is a car park uh, at the top of the of the cliff, which incidentally was packed, and it took us quite a while doing laps of the car park for about half an hour before we could find a a space. But again, like I said, it's just a, a 
at this time of year, you know, in August, in in the Spanish kind of coasts and beaches, they are going to be uh, pretty busy. So using uh, Conil as our base, we uh, also headed in the opposite direction to explore some beaches uh, down in the south, uh, heading southeast. And uh, well, we jumped in the car, and all of these beaches are really no more than about an hour's drive from Conil. And we stopped off at a small beach town called Vaora, Vaora, uh, which we liked, which is a bit more low key. Kind of had a little bit of a, I don't know, backpackery hippie vibe, if you like. Um, we quite liked it. And from there, we also headed down uh, to uh, a little town and beach uh, called uh, Los Caños de Mecca. Caños de Mecca. And uh, the beach nearest to Los Caños de Mecca is called Playa Faro de Trafalga, the Trafalgar Lighthouse Beach. And there is indeed uh, the uh, lighthouse. And it's a really nice walk up on the promontory with a view right across the Cabo de Trafalga, which is the Cape of Trafalga. And indeed, it was exactly in those waters where the Battle of Trafalga took place. So there we were laying on the beach. There was a little chiringuito playing uh, nice chilled out Latin uh, music. And I was looking across the sea and looking up at this uh, lighthouse thinking, wow, the Battle of Trafalga happened just, you know, out on those waters. We liked Los Caños de Mecca, um, had a, again, a bit of a kind of backpackery, um, hippie vibe, if you like, because it's got a lot of, uh, well, there are apartments there, but it's not as built up, nowhere near as big or as built up as uh, Conil, and it's got quite a lot of um, uh, camping uh, campsites. And then from there, we headed further along, heading uh, east to Barbate. Uh, Barbate after the river Barbate, which is just on the mouth of the river there, and just sort of east of the, uh, as I said, the Cape of Trafalgar. And, um, well, uh, I didn't know this, but apparently it used to be called Barbate de Franco. Yeah, after General Francisco Franco, um, um, because apparently Franco uh, liked to spend his leisure time there in Barbate. Um, who knew? I, I didn't know that, to be honest, um, but apparently that was his favourite place to go and uh, relax. Um, it's no longer <laughs> called uh, Barbate de Franco. Uh, the name was just reverted back to Barbate, but that was only as recent as 1998. We arrived in Barbate at about 8, 8.30, 9pm, and um, so it was getting dark. So we didn't actually go to the beach. But one thing I would say is it's got a lovely beach, uh, right, uh, very easily accessible from the uh, the promenade. Um, it's quite small, um, I suppose. Is what about a kilometre of uh, promenade along the beach, uh, possibly two. But there's probably about a kilometre of uh, restaurants and small bars along the coast of Barbate. But uh, to be honest, we want, we were a bit fed up of eating <laughs> fried seafood and meat and quite heavy food. And so we didn't actually end up stopping in Barbate in the end because we didn't really see any restaurants that, you know, caught our attention. 
I've heard some curious stories about it. Some people have said to me, oh, Barabate's got a bit of a reputation for being a bit, I don't know, not dangerous, a bit dodgy. Some, I don't know whether, you know, some people have said it's got something to do with mafia, drug running, who knows. Um, I didn't see any of that there. But yeah, it does have a kind of bit of a rough and ready edge to it, I would say. After we'd explored that part of the coast, we left Conil. We headed back up, going heading northwest uh, via Cadiz. And we did make a little stop off uh, in El Puerto de Santa Maria to meet some friends. I love El Puerto. Um, it's just a really charming but slightly less polished than other Spanish coastal cities. Really pretty uh, old historic centre. Fantastic for seafood restaurants. And there's also in El Puerto de Santa Maria, when I say in, but just on the outskirts of the town, about a 10-minute drive from the very centre of the city, is um, a really lovely beach called Puerto Sherry. Yeah, after sherry wine. Um, Puerto Sherry. So it's a little port, and right next to the Puerto Sherry, you've got Playa de la Muralla. Uh, Playa de la Muralla um, is a kind of a, a cove. It's not a very uh, large uh, beach. It's probably just a couple of hundred meters long, but really pretty, lovely fine sand. And actually, that wasn't too uh, busy while we were there. The nice thing about Puerto Sherry is it's got a little esplanade uh, raised up above the beach and the sea with lovely views, lined with little restaurants and some quite good restaurants along there as well. We stopped at a seafood restaurant uh, with our, our Spanish friends who are from El Puerto. As I'd said before, uh, if you're visiting Cadiz, uh, I would uh, definitely include a little side trip to El Puerto de Santa Maria because you can uh, access it. You can get there by car. It's just the other side of the uh, Rio Guadalete, which kind of separates uh, Cadiz to the south uh, from El Puerto in the north. And we had some really good food there. We only spent one day there. Of course, the other thing to mention about uh, El Puerto de Santa Maria is it's one of the uh, cities uh, which forms the kind of sherry triangle, if you like. Uh, so there are bodegas. If you're into sherry, there are a number of bodegas in El Puerto de Santa Maria. Probably the most famous one being the Osborne, Bodegas Osborne, Bodegas Grant and Bodegas Gutierrez. Colosia as well. But it's just a really uh, sweet town to have a walk around. It's not overwhelming. You could have a you could probably see most of the center in just a couple of hours. The other interesting thing to mention uh, about El Puerto de Santa Maria is a bit of the history. Christopher Columbus's second expedition to the Americas actually set sail from El Puerto and his uh, his pilot and his pilot Juan de la Cosa drew his world map. Uh, it was the first map including the coast of the New World and he drew that up in El Puerto in 1500. And uh, well, Christopher Columbus visited El Puerto in 1480 and uh, received encouragement for uh, his travel plans. And uh, El Puerto subsequently became the residence of several wealthy cargadores or merchants who operated uh, Spain's trade with the Americas, so from, from El Puerto. So 
So from there we headed further northwest uh, towards Huelva province and uh, our next stop was El Rocío. Uh, that's where we'd booked uh, uh, accommodation in the uh, small town of El Rocío, which is to the northwest of the Parque Nacional de Doñana, the Doñana National Park, uh, which I'll talk about in a minute. Now, to get to El Rocío and really to Huelva, so if you want to get to the other side of the Parque Nacional de Doñana, uh, well, obviously it's a national park, and thankfully they haven't built any uh, motorways or major roads <laughs> going right through the national park. But for this reason, it does mean you have to do quite a big detour around the national park. Uh, so we headed uh, then from El Puerto de Santa Maria up to really basically Seville. Um, we ended up driving right through the centre of Seville. Uh, thanks to Google Maps uh, for some reason. And then from Seville, we headed directly uh, west towards Huelva and then took a turn to the south, which took us to El Rocío. So, El Rocío. Um, it's a strange town in a kind of charming way. It's just not like anything I've seen before in Spain, uh, certainly not what I expected. Um, so it's just, as I said, on the edge of the lagoons and marshes of the Doñana National Park. And it, yeah, it looks literally like something, <laughs> it looks like a film set from a, a cowboy movie, From a looks like something from a, a spaghetti western. And... Um, as you drive in, uh, there are the, the, the tarmac from the, from the kind of main road or the motorway uh, turnoff, uh, the tarmac just abruptly ends uh, as you enter the town and it just turns to sand and dust. And uh, there are no road markings, there are no road signs, there are no traffic lights, uh, nothing like that. And, uh, well, very few cars or <laughs> literally no traffic. Uh, the curious thing is that uh, everybody uh, who lives in the in the town travels around by by horse on horseback, and uh, well, we also saw uh, horses and carts and horse and traps and this kind of thing. So yeah, horses are certainly popular with the locals. You see them trotting around the streets, going about their business, <laughs> going shopping. There are a few shops. There are quite a lot of bars and uh, restaurants dotted around the town. And the other thing you notice uh, as well are there are quite a lot of uh, stables and equestrian uh, training rings and you will see uh, lots of horse training uh, going on but uh, well putting aside uh, what the town looks like and the horses the other major thing that El Rocío is uh, really famous for is the annual uh, pilgrimage at Pentecost which is called the Romeria del Rocío it's one of Spain's biggest uh, festivals uh, when the town's population uh, increases dramatically um, and something like a million people descend on the town uh, to honour the saint uh, Rocío. Uh, the story of the pilgrimage dates back to the 13th century uh, when it is supposed that a local shepherd discovered a statue of the Virgin Mary uh, La Virgen El Rocío in a tree trunk and the wooden figure is believed by its followers to cure infertility, uh, mental disorders and other diseases. So of course eventually a shrine was built and uh, this became the site of various uh, miracles and in 1653 the nearby village of Almonte 
uh, proclaimed that the saint had indeed saved the town from the plague. So over the centuries, obviously, uh, word spread um, about these miracles and more and more pilgrims queued up to come and visit. And, uh, well, there was such a huge uh, surge in numbers uh, from various brotherhoods uh, or hermandades around Spain that each uh, hermandad or each uh, brotherhood uh, constructed its own little chapel. And it's quite interesting, if you walk around El Rocío, you see, uh, well, dozens of these little chapels uh, with the name of the uh, Brotherhood uh, written above the door, usually in, in, in tiled letters. Uh, and there are dozens of them, a lot of them named after various towns and cities around Spain, uh, each with a kind of white facade and a little miniature uh, bell tower as well, and a big, big, uh, tall wooden doorway or gate uh, into the into the Brotherhood building. At first I was quite intrigued. Why are there all these buildings with different towns and names of different towns and cities around Spain? So there you go. Um, so Brotherhoods uh, over the centuries began descending on El Rocío uh, from various Brotherhoods around the country. And, uh, and it's thought that there are something like a, a 100 Brotherhoods uh, descend on uh, El Rocío during uh, the during the festival and these little buildings are known as rocieros um, so it's fair to say that it's actually a very quiet place it's probably the quietest place we visited during the uh, during the trip um, there are a few tourists uh, there there are a handful of locals not very many i think the population of El Rocío is only a few hundred um, most of the year, apart from obviously the, the festival. So really peaceful, a bit like a ghost town um, a lot of the time, but a really useful space to use for exploring the Doñana National Park. One particular highlight, I would say, uh, in El Rocío is the giant, beautiful, bright white church uh, which dominates the main square in the town. And I say main square, it's not paved, it's not tiled, it is a square of dust and sand. Uh, but there, nonetheless, there it is, the giant Sanctuario de Nuestra Señora, uh, really beautiful, with its lovely white bell towers, and uh, inside... Uh, the shrine to El Rocío is um, in bright gold, incredibly intricate. Uh, uh, it really stands out compared to the rest of the church, uh, which is just uh, in very plain white plaster. Um, and then you have this huge uh, gold shrine. The church itself isn't actually that old. Um, the origins date back to 1270, and uh, the original building was built in the Mudéjar style, but uh, it didn't survive, and the old church collapsed in the 18th century. But the church that you see there today was actually rebuilt during the 1960s um, because of an earthquake. But yeah, as I say, the altarpiece is, is really highly decorated uh, in gold with biblical figures and angels everywhere. Uh, it's really worth stepping in uh, to see it. You can't really miss it, to be honest, in, in this small town. But I guess the real highlight, especially if you're into a bit of peace and quiet and uh, you're into uh, wildlife, of course, the obvious trip to make in, uh, well, even if you're not staying in El Rocío, but if you're in this part of Spain near Huelva, is to uh, to visit the Doñana National Park, uh, which is a big natural reserve. It kind of straddles the uh, Huelva province, uh, Cadiz, 
and Seville, and it's 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 pretty it's pretty extensive. It's well over two hundred square miles of national reserve, a large extent of which is is a protected area. Uh, so you you know you can't you can drive into parts of it, but to really get into the heart of it, you you have to take a, a, a guide um, to get right into the area where there are the marshes. And in terms of species, you know, migratory birds, deer, red deer, wild boars, uh, European badgers, there are Egyptian mongooses, and uh, in some endangered species as well, including the imperial eagle and the elusive Iberian lynx, which uh, we were hoping to see, but uh, alas, no, uh, around the uh, the tracks and roads near to the Doniana National Park. You see a lot of signposts along the road saying, you know, beware or caution of the Iberian lynx, not because they're going to come and run up and attack you, but more like so you don't uh, run them over if they suddenly uh, cross the road in front of you. But no, unfortunately, we didn't see any. So while we were staying in El Rocío, we uh, made a day trip to uh, Portugal, just zipped across the border. Uh, It's about a two-hour drive to Faro, which is where we wanted to go, Um, a small city on the Algarve coast of Portugal. Uh, It's a really beautiful, really charming city, I found. Uh, It's not very big. It's about 100,000 inhabitants. And it has influences from, well, the usual suspects, uh, the Romans, the Byzantines, the Visigoths, the Moors. Uh, The Byzantine presence um, is uh, is still present in the city today with its uh, city walls and towers. Uh, The city itself isn't actually right on the coast, um, even though it does have a port. So it's not a beach city. There are some beautiful beaches uh, nearby, um, uh, some of which you can take a boat from the port in Faro to the beach. But, you know, to be honest with you, if you're visiting Faro, I I don't think you're there to to go to the beach. You really want to explore the city, which is situated on a lagoon just set back from the, uh, the actual coast. And uh, really the part of the town that you really want to be focusing on if you're there um, for a short period of time at least, as I say, we were there for a day, a bit less, uh, just over half a day, which was enough to get a feel for the feel for the city. Um, and uh, well, we arrived and parked up to the north of the city and we kind of walked around some very be- really beautiful streets thinking, oh, this is nice, uh, but is this it? And actually we realized as we walked further and further south uh, and followed signs towards the uh, the port. Um, this is when you stumble across the kind of the old Byzantine kind of uh, fortified wall and ruins and the towers uh, inside which is a kind of medieval church called the uh, Iglesia de Santa Maria. And uh, all of this area is full of tiny little narrow streets. And, and, and one of the classic things that you notice in Portugal, more common than in Spain. And again, I've seen this in in, in Lisbon and in uh, Porto, in uh, further north in Portugal, is the little uh, one-story uh, townhouses, which are beautifully embellished with, um, well, with tiles, with ornately patterned tiles. And they're absolutely beautiful, uh, all different designs. And some of these little back streets you walk around um, give you the opportunity to look at all of these different uh, uh, intricate uh, tiled designs uh, on the facades of the houses, a bit like the kind of tiles you'd see in the kind of courtyards in, uh, you know, the Pueblos Blancos in Spain. But uh, this time they're all on the uh, the facades of the houses. Again, it's a lovely, easy city to walk around. 
around and uh, and noticeably cheaper than Spain. We had a fantastic meal, really, really affordable, not right in the centre. It was sort of next to where we parked up in a northern neighbourhood of the city. And I think we ordered uh, grilled fish. So we had two plates of grilled fish, which came with potatoes and uh, and some vegetables and bread and beautiful uh, little black uh, olives. And we had this lovely dessert of an uh, orange cake, which was like a sort of orange sponge, but had been made with kind of egg, a bit like a kind of egg custard slash sponge orange cake, uh, a carafe of white wine, and it came to 16 euros for both of us, an incredibly good value, and really one of the best meals I'd had during the whole trip. So there you go, that's Faro. Um, I would just say it's absolutely well worth it, very, very charming and beautiful, small, manageable Portuguese city. Um, Again, you know, this podcast is not about Portugal, but hey, this is uh, this is a side trip from Spain. And uh, as I say, I would have loved to have actually spent more time in Faro. It's, uh, I would say, a city that certainly warrants uh, um, a couple of days or a couple of nights to really to really uh, enjoy it. Very relaxed, quite touristy. Um, there were quite a few tourists around, but uh, nonetheless, a really, really beautiful city. I, I really fell in love with it and I would uh, uh, 100% like to go back and uh, get to know it a bit more. So uh, from Faro we had one more night left in El Rocío. We headed back along the coast uh, to El Rocío and on our final night well, we, were, we were both quite tired after walking around Faro and uh, we, weren't, we were planning on getting an early night, packing our cases ready to make the schlep back up to Madrid. But uh, as it happened, we were passing a little uh, bar and uh, quite a bustling little terrace out on the sand and dust. And we said, well, let's go and let's stop and have a have a glass of wine. It's our last night in El Rocío. So we did. We parked up and uh, this bar was uh, in a five minute walk from our accommodation. And we ordered a little cheese board because uh, we're big cheese fans. <laughs> and uh, we ordered this cheese called payoyo, which we tried first in Cadiz, and it's absolutely delicious. Highly recommend it. It is uh, indigenous to the Sierra de Cadiz, uh, so uh, it's quite hard. I've not seen it anywhere else in Spain. I think it's really uh, native to the Cadiz area of Spain, and uh, it's uh, it's a goat's cheese. It's uh, a kind of semi hard goat's cheese uh, with a kind of smoked flavour and it's really good, really, really good. It's like a sort of chalky white colour. Anyway, don't get me on cheese. Um, we ordered a, we ordered the cheese, had a couple of glasses of wine and, um, well, I'm going to try and really build a picture for you because for me this is like something I'd never experienced before in Spain and it kind of blew my mind a bit. There we are, sitting out on this little terraza on tables, this tiny little bar on a street of dust and sand, which did look like something straight out of the Wild West. It's getting dusk. There is the the sound of crickets in the background. Uh, The bar is owned by two sisters, really friendly, uh, originally from uh, the Triana neighbourhood of Seville. And uh, one of the sisters is sparking up a, a barbecue grill just alongside the terrace. So you've got the smell of smouldering firewood filling the air. And on the grill, she's slapping down some big chorizo sausages. You've got this lovely smell of of chorizo grilling, the sound of the crickets. And there we are. There's a few people sitting on the terraza. And then uh, about five friends uh, rock up 
on horseback. Alongside this terrace, there is like a, a kind of wooden fence, I suppose, a wooden rail. They tie up their horses, and uh, there are two beautiful white-grey, dapple-grey horses among them. And uh, they know the owner of the bar, and they kind of shout their order across to the, uh, to, the, to the lady. And the lady comes out, they stay on their horseback, and the lady comes out and hands them up their beer, their sherry, and their tapas. And there they are, there are these five friends uh, who obviously live in the, in the town supping their drinks and eating their tapas whilst <laughs> on horseback and I just thought wow where would you ever see this this is truly um, amazing really uh, so it's an amazing atmosphere and then um, this table of about four or five Spanish obviously friends sat next to us in their early 20s I would say probably yeah, about 22 21 22 23 uh, one of them takes out a guitar, uh, a young guy, and he starts kind of jamming and strumming, uh, a little few sort of flamenco riffs, and then some sevillana riffs. And then before you know it, the girl sat next to him, who was quite heavily pregnant actually, started singing. And wow, what a voice. Um, we are like recorded a little bit of it so i'll play you a little snippet in a second but just to say that these youngsters um you just i just didn't expect these voices to come out of their mouth because at first she started singing and then a couple of the other guys who were sat with them one by one started taking it in turns to sing as well and they all had absolutely beautiful voices uh, so i'll leave you with a couple of snippets of that now uh, given the setting the smells the, the atmosphere and then these five guys it wasn't an organized concert it was nothing like that they were just sat on a table drinking minding their own business and then just started jamming together a mixture of, sort of flamenco sevillanas uh, well anyway have a listen Bye. 
So that was our final night in El Rocío and indeed the final night of our holidays. So uh, a six and a half hour schlep back to Madrid awaited us and uh, well, everything passed off without any hitches. Not too bad. The traffic, a few, few crazy drivers along the way. I hope it's been interesting and somewhat useful. Um, bit of a rambling episode, I'm afraid. I had quite a lot to squeeze in. I did, th- I did think about uh, making this into two different episodes. And I thought, now nah, what the hell, let's have a big mammoth <laughs> travelogue uh, episode. So there you go. I hope it's been interesting and uh, somewhat entertaining, especially if you're not in Spain and you want to hear some sights and sounds from Spain, if it's possible to hear sights. So there you go. Costa de la Luz. Highly recommendable. As I said, you you have my uh, my opinions on the different places we've visited. I'm sure that uh, many of listeners have been to these places before and may have a different opinion. Um, but that's 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 what we thought about those different places but i would say that that part of spain the costa de la luz the the southwest of spain west of gibraltar um, you're going to find some stunning scenery stunning beaches it's a bit more rugged it's more windy the water's colder it's a bit more dramatic hey it's the atlantic coast it's not the uh, the uh, soupy warm balmy waters of the mediterranean but well worth a visit i would love to go back and explore the area more and as i said at the beginning of this episode I think I kind of tried to cram a bit too much into the uh, the two weeks or just over two weeks that we were away for so that will just about do it for this episode uh, just to say for anyone who's new to the Wedding Spain podcast uh, it's a podcast first and foremost but we also have a presence on the usual social media hangouts yep Facebook particularly the Facebook group, head over and join for free if you'd like to socialise with other Spain fans. Um, It's a place to share photos, articles, ask questions, anything like that. Uh, So head over to Facebook. Um, I've posted numerous photographs on the When in Spain uh, Instagram account. So if you'd like to see some photos of the places I've just been talking about, go and have a look on the Instagram account and follow us on there. Uh, when in Spain's on Twitter, and uh, if you'd like to get in touch with me directly for any reason, for if you'd like to give some feedback about the podcast, if you've got any uh, episode ideas, uh, or if you'd like to ask me any question about Spain, uh, email me at whenInSpain1, that's the number one, whenInSpain1 at outlook.com. Uh, just a couple of things to say if you do listen to the podcast regularly but you haven't actually hit the subscribe button on the uh, podcast platform where you listen please do hit the subscribe button Um, two things well it probably doesn't make much difference to you but uh, if you hit the subscribe button uh, not only do you automatically receive the episode as soon as it's published which I'm sure you all know but more importantly when you subscribe it helps push the podcast higher up the charts as it were and it helps 
give the podcast more visibility just by hitting that subscribe button, uh, which helps in turn more people discover this podcast, which is, of course, what I want. And finally, of course, don't mean to go on about it, but if you can uh, spare a dollar or two a month to help support uh, the work that I do and putting this podcast together, you can do that on patreon.com forward slash when in Spain. Uh, Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, if you're not familiar with it, it's a crowdfunding uh, uh, service. Uh, it's American. I have lots of people asking me, why is it in dollars? It's in dollars purely because it's an American-based crowdfunding platform and everything is operate. Everything operates in dollars. So what I do is uh, convert it to euros. But to make the payment, it's in dollars. It's safe. It's secure. We've got 40 patrons at the moment. My goal by October is to try and get uh, the half century, 50 patrons supporting when in Spain. And I uh, must just say a really big thank you to all patrons, uh, existing patrons who are currently supporting me uh, to make this podcast. Really, one final thing, and I'll be out of your ears. In the last episode, uh, I mentioned a few people who had got in touch to say where they listen to this podcast and what they're doing and kind of how it fits into their daily routine. I like to think that when I'm speaking into this microphone, like I am now that I'm not just talking to a, a, a brick wall and I know I'm not I'm uh, I really appreciate you guys who uh, get in touch and email me um, but you know I, I like this podcast to be a two-way conversation as well so you know get in touch with anything at all but I would love to find out where you're listening from uh, why you listen uh, what you're doing when you listen and uh, and so uh, feel free on the when in Spain Facebook group or you can email it to me tell me who you are where you listen, what you're doing when you listen, and why you're listening. And if you're, while you're at it, if you like, uh, why not include a little photo if you listen somewhere that's unusual or if you're uh, in an interesting place while you listen to the podcast. Don't be shy. Go on, send over a selfie of you listening to When in Spain and I will give you a mention. So enough of me. Have a fantastic week, whatever you're doing. Uh, I have noticed that the uh, podcast publishing dates have got a little bit out of sync while I've been on holiday, Um, but we will get back into the rhythm of uh, publishing every week on a Monday, hopefully, all being well. So I'll stop rambling on now. Uh, Looking forward to talking to you again next week. And until then, muchísimas gracias and hasta luego.